You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for healthcare professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist, hematologist, and an LLS volunteer. And I want to thank all of you so much for joining us on this episode. Today, we're going to discuss survivorship care in older adults, including language and cultural considerations, long-term and late effects of treatment of older adults, survivorship care planning, and potential barriers to adherence, caregiver involvement in decision-making, and support and follow-up care coordination. We're delighted to be joined by Dr. Frank Pinedo, who is a professor of psychology and medicine at the Center for Cancer Survivorship and Behavioral Translation Sciences. He is director of that center, director of cancer survivorship and supportive care at the Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center and the Sylvester DCC Living Proof Endowed Chair in Cancer Survivorship at the College of Arts and Sciences at the Miller School of Medicine in Miami. Frank, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure, Dr. Miller. So by the way, I have to do a disclaimer. No matter what people may think, the Miller School is not named for me. <laughs> First, again, Frank, this is an important topic. I know, you know, because we have an aging population and unfortunately cancer is a very, very common problem. If you would sort of give us an overview of what are some of the special needs of cancer survivors in general and also in particular of older cancer survivors. Sure, absolutely. So over the past several decades, we really have seen an unprecedented growth in the number of cancer survivors in the United States. Currently, there's about 18 million survivors. That number is expected to reach about 26 million by 2040, and that's going to be about 5% of the U.S. population then. The majority of cancer survivors are 65 or older, about actually 64% of them fall over the age of 65, and about a fifth of those are racial and ethnic minorities. So obviously, we've seen this benefit in longevity due to advances in early detection and treatments that are available. But the survival benefit that we have does come with some challenges. We have the chronicity of treatment-related side effects specific to older adults, because uh, with older adults, we see a higher prevalence of comorbid conditions that complicates the survivorship picture, particularly adjustment during the post-treatment period in terms of the effects that are rendered by cancer treatments like fatigue, pain sensitivity, cognitive challenges. If we look at older adults, if we look at the 65 and older population, about 70% of them have at least three comorbidities or more. So now we're thinking of a cancer survivor who's also having to manage diabetes, hypertension, arthritis, and other conditions. So it creates quite a bit of a complex clinical picture for these patients. That coupled with challenges within survivorship care, the issue of care fragmentation, if you have a patient still going to their oncologist or their 
cancer specialist, that provider doesn't necessarily deal with those other comorbidities. So care tends to be fragmented to some extent. And in fact, something that I find surprising, but it's a phenomenon that we experience here within our cancer center, and it's not that uncommon, is that a lot of older survivors don't have a primary care provider. They rely on most of their care from their cancer specialist or oncologist. And that, again, creates some challenges. When I promote survivorship care with my oncology colleagues, I always tell them, I want you to be laser focused on the cancer treatment of the patient and let survivorship and primary care take care of these other conditions, these other comorbidities or even issues about mental health. And then finally, and I'll stop there, is that we also know that lifestyle factors can contribute to not only disease burden, but also morbidity and mortality. And uh, I think we're all familiar with the obesity epidemic that we have in the United States, challenges with proper nutrition. And again, that becomes more of a profound challenge in older age. I'd like to hone in for a few minutes on physical side effects of late and long-term effects of cancer care. What are some of the things you're seeing in your survivorship program in older adults? Yeah, great question, Ken. I think one of the big concerns that I have is cognitive function and cognitive challenges. We don't do a great job at assessing cognitive function, although there are measures out there that are relatively well validated. They're what we call gross measures or of, of cognitive function to assess it properly. It's labor intensive, we just don't have. But with that said, when we do assess it, we do find that older adults definitely experience cognitive changes that begin to manifest as memory problems, difficulty in concentrating, but they do tend to get worse with time. And we used to use this term chemo brain, which mm -hmm. now it's just it's not a very accepted term, but this cancer-related cognitive impairment is a problem. And from a physiological perspective, a lot of the cancer treatments can affect multiple physiological systems. So one pathway that I can think of right away is inflammation and inflammatory cytokines, which cross the blood-brain barrier and they have neurotoxic effects on particular neurotransmitters which are associated with memory. They also have impact on hippocampal areas associated with memory. We really have to do a better job with older adults, not only thoroughly assessing cognitive function and ideally pre-morbid cognitive function before they're treated for cancer, but also monitoring and implementing some techniques or interventions that are out there. The other issue is fatigue. Fatigue, again, because of cancer treatments, it's probably the most common reported or documented long-term effect of cancer treatments. And data has shown that older adults do experience fatigue more intensely than younger individuals. Probably it's an interaction or exacerbated by age-related physical declines that are already taking place. But nonetheless, the phenomenon is present. They are more fatigued. And that fatigue impacts their quality of life and overall function, as you could imagine. Of course, there's issues with sexual health and immune suppression also, which, again, once we hit 50, unfortunately, our immune system begins to spiral down, or although our innate immune system keeps us going. But mm -hmm. a lot of treatments do weaken the immune system further, which makes older adults more vulnerable to infections. But I would say it's the issue of assessment and particularly focusing on that cognitive function and fatigue, which are highly problematic. So, Frank, I want to ask you, you know, and one of the ways that I've thought about it, survivorship is different groups after treatments. So one group is 
basically doing pretty well, if obviously facing comorbidity. Some patients have late and long-term effects. Some have second cancers and some have secondary cancers. Do you get a sense of, in the adult population, do we, firstly, do we have data on what percentage of especially older survivors are in each of those groups? Is there data or, and if there's not, what's your sense of it? How many long-term survivors are just doing well and basically cancer is part of their past medical history? I can tell you, we don't have great data. There's now a couple of survivorship cohort studies that are starting to generate some data that speaks exactly to what you're referring to, Dr. Miller. But we do know that the vast majority of survivors, actually, they do relatively well. They adapt relatively well to their diagnosis and the treatment. Of course, there's treatment-related side effects, many of which are late effects, as you mentioned, and those can be chronic and debilitating. But the vast majority of survivors would rate that their health is relatively reasonably well, despite having been treated for cancer. Of course, it's highly variable depending on the cancer site. We're looking at a localized prostate cancer, breast cancer. Those patients, despite having some late effects, related to treatment specific to either sexual dysfunction or fatigue or cancer-related cognitive impairment. Otherwise, they're doing very well. But then with the more serious cancers that are uh, more intractable and and less responsive to treatment, including some of the blood cancers, as as you know, those patients are dealing with more chronic symptoms of fatigue, of pain sensitivity. And then there's also the emotional issue, dealing with concerns and fear of recurrence of the cancer. One of the many things older adults do have going for themselves is that with older age, although not guaranteed, but typically wisdom comes with it and experience. And that experience does help the older individual cope better, if you will, with the cancer diagnosis and its treatment. And we do have some data on that if we're looking, for example, at younger breast cancer survivors who are still in their reproductive years and they get diagnosed with breast cancer and undergo treatment relative to the older adult, the 65 and older, they don't do as well in terms of emotional well-being and physical well-being. For older adults, are there any factors that might predict for a higher risk of more psychosocial problems afterwards? Sure, absolutely. So one of the strongest predictors that we have is premorbid function. So individuals who have had a history of depression, anxiety, social isolation, or even personality dysfunction like interpersonal sensitivity or hostility, those individuals don't adjust as well for a variety of reasons. This, these pre-morbid or pre-cancer, if you will, mental health issues can interfere with how the patient adapts and copes with the cancer diagnosis, how they communicate with their spouse, partner, or family. So that is one very strong predictor. The other predictors, as you would imagine, are comorbidities. So again, the more comorbidities an individual has, the less likely that they're going to have what we tend to refer to as optimal quality of life, which as you know, can is a multidimensional construct that taps not only into physical well-being, but also social well-being and emotional well-being. A couple of the other factors are pretty obvious. The C-severity, as I mentioned earlier, so a more advanced cancer site that is less responsive to treatment creates more psychosocial challenges down the road. And then finally, social determinants of health, access to care, finances, uh, insurance. There's a lot of interest now in studying what has been coined as financial toxicity Mm -hmm. and how that impacts quality of life and multiple outcomes 
with individuals. And as older adults retire and the finances may not be as robust, issues with finances become more central. And in fact, cancer and its treatment is one of the major drivers of bankruptcy in the United States. And that's the case for many older adults with cancer. I'd like to learn more about cultural and social and language impact on cancer survivorship in older adults. So tell us more if you would. Absolutely, Ken. It's critically important. Culture plays such a role in how one adapts, not only adapts to, but also perceives an illness. As you know, Hispanics, African-Americans, Asian cultures are highly collectivistic cultures. And what that translates to in the context of cancer is that the central unit that gets impacted by the diagnosis and treatment, it's typically the entire family. It's just not the individual. So that can work in positive ways and negative ways. Let me start with the positive. In a positive light, it means that the individual will have a support system where they may have extended family that even lives with them in the same household, which may be able to provide assistance and comfort and support. But on the flip side of that, it also doesn't empower the individual to put themselves first when it comes to taking care of their health. So they may feel that because the basic unit of the family is the whole family, that the needs of the group supersede the needs of the individual. So caregiving, child care, other responsibilities may supersede treatment compliance, making medical appointments. So it's kind of a balancing act for us that work with uh, racial and ethnic minority communities. And how do we capitalize from the positive aspects that culture can render on adjusting to cancer and also tackle the negative part? Another part is perceptions about the illness. A lot of work several decades ago focused on cancer fatalism. And it was work done primarily with African-Americans and trying to understand this notion that cancer, despite a patient being told that this is a localized disease, it's highly curable, 90% or chance higher of survival in five years, and you're likely going to die of something else. Cancer in many ways by many racial and ethnic minority groups is still viewed as a death sentence. In fact, in some communities in South Florida, the word cancer is not even mentioned. They don't refer to it, they'll whisper it, or, or they just won't say it, because it carries such a negative stigma with it. So we try very hard to work with our communities, not only to destigmatize the concept of cancer, but create a sense of normalcy that this is something that could happen to everyone. Because if you feel shame, if you feel guilt, you're probably going to be less likely to do what you need to, to make sure that you have uh, optimal outcomes. You know, I have to say, and I'm just truly free associating now, but many of my oncology visits have been using an interpreter. And even though in a sense we're interpreting the words, I'm wondering if a lot of the meaning gets lost literally in translation and the intercultural relationship. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I think definitely there's something that does get lost in translation, uh, particularly when it comes to psychosocial issues. As we were talking about earlier, we know from some of the literature that individuals may be more likely to express negative emotions and distress in their own language, although some research is also pointing out that that may be a benefit of expressing that in a second language. But there's something definitely that does get lost in the language. But with that said, I think the, the larger challenge is when you have 
a patient along with a caregiver or a couple of family members and the family members, not that they get in the way, but they kind of take over the discourse, right? And they'll even be making hand signals of what to say, what not to say, you know, tone it down because they're trying to be protective. And for our own Western view of of medicine is, you know, be direct, be fully transparent. And I think that's where we run into a couple of challenges. But quite a bit of work has gone into cultural competency or cultural informed care and as with everything educating the family educating the caregivers about what the interaction is going to be with the medical team i think goes a long way in addressing some of those challenges so i want to ask you about post-treatment care many oncologists will say you know i follow my patients forever a study that i helped published was showing that uh, actually long-term follow-up rates are certainly not 100%. And in fact, in one study, it was about 50% in five years. And I want to ask you more about that. You were talking about oncologists being laser-focused on cancer follow-up. So what would be the the ideal follow-up for someone who's an older cancer survivor? Who would do what? And do oncologists need to keep seeing patients for 5, 10, 15, 20 years? That's a very tough question to answer, and I will say that it's variable and it depends on the physician to some extent. Let me just backtrack a little. When the concept of survivorship started, I think many of us in the field started conceptualizing as having a centralized survivorship care program or clinic where we would, after maybe completion of primary treatment or maybe after five years of treatment, the patient would transition their care to that survivorship clinic and those individuals would take care of not only lifestyle and comorbidities, but also mm-hmm. oncology follow-up, labs, imaging, etc. And I can talk a little bit about the model that we have here, which is a model that has been successful so far, is that we have a very hybrid approach that's very dependent on what the disease group wants, meaning what the oncologists prefer. Yeah. Lymphoma would be an example. So we uh, just created a survivorship uh, wellness clinic for our lymphoma patients. We We built it from the ground up, starting with the oncologist. We didn't go in and tell them, this is what we think we should do. This is not when the patient should be transferred or transferred at all. We want you to tell us what the timeline should be or what the point should be that the patient starts seeing survivorship. And this is what we offer. So we explain very clearly what we offer. So far, it's worked extremely well. So for example, the way that it works here at Miami is that a patient, after they have been six months in remission, they see a survivorship, either PA or advanced uh, practitioner. And that individual goes over a survivorship care plan. It goes over follow-up treatment guidelines, a review of the care team. And then places a lot of emphasis on quality of life, emotional well-being, comorbidities, making sure they're connected to primary care, and all those other aspects that we don't want the oncologist having to spend time Mm. having to resolve for the patient. So I think that we have found a very nice compromise where the oncologist feels that they still have agency over the patient and that they're guiding the survivorship interaction at the point where they feel it should be appropriate. That's lymphoma. Now let me pivot to breast cancer. Mm -hmm. There we have a different phenomenon. We have 
a mix of oncologists, some breast oncologists would say, yeah, I'll keep seeing my patients, you know, they're 10, 15 years old, but I still want to see them. And we have other oncologists telling us, please, we just cannot keep up yeah. with our patients. They're coming in and we're not doing any oncologic care. Yes. We're doing yeah. everything else. So I think, Ken, the, the answer is we have been very flexible and that has led to success of adapting to specific disease sites and specific physician groups. In a large cancer center, firstly, that sounds like a fantastic model because it's also adapting to the dynamics of a large center because a lot of cancer care is in the community. It is, you know, medium-sized practices or hospital-based practices. What would be your thoughts on a model that might work in that setting? Yeah, that's a great question. So in those settings, I don't have a specific answer of what would work. We actually just put a, a grant together to try to implement survivorship care within federally qualified health centers, which, as you are aware, treats uh, financially disenfranchised communities. Yeah. But there, I would say those models have to be a bit more intensive because those are really primary care settings where there's really not much oncology care or attention. And it's a matter of assessing and creating a risk stratified approach where as long as the patient is thoroughly assessed and effectively assessed, we would be able to have an idea whether they need to go back and see an oncology specialist. We are also working with community oncology clinics, and there it usually boils down to an issue of resources. Who is going to pay for like a survivorship specialist, if you will, like an advanced practitioner? And we don't have enough data that can drive the argument. And that's, if I can make a pitch for the data that we need, is the cost effectiveness of these programs. What is the value added by having survivorship care plans, by having a specialized survivorship approach that helps the patients? Because at the end of the day, can uh, what's going to drive community sites like tertiary cancer centers is what is the savings? What are the system level outcomes that we right. can show? So we can already show that if we properly assess and triage patients, we can reduce hospital readmissions and ER visits, and that's great. But we got to monetize that. we got to show a dollar value of what is the cost savings so that the proper resources can be allocated. And I don't think it's going to be any different in a community oncology clinic where they also have their financial pressures. Frank, I'd like to drill down a little bit more on the issue of primary care for cancer survivors. There's been a lot of interesting research done on that topic of what our cancer survivors are getting as much of as non-cancer survivors, that they're getting less of, that they're getting more of in terms of primary care. What's your reading on that literature and on that topic? Yeah, specific to primary care, I think that the issue is that we have to make sure that primary care teams are fully aware and educated on how to take care of a cancer survivor. And I'll give an obvious example. So having had cancer already puts you at risk for a secondary cancer. So Mm -hmm. not even thinking of recurrence, which obviously it's a central concern, but secondary cancers are a problem. If a primary care practice or practitioner doesn't really understand, and this can be variable by the type of disease that the patient has, that that individual is at elevated risk of developing a second cancer, that 
provider is likely not going to order the necessary screenings that need to be in place to make sure that we have adequate surveillance to catch the cancer early on or even uh, implement preventive strategies. So that's one example. Another example in primary care is the issue of mental health and psychosocial issues. Again, due to financial pressures, health system pressures, that doesn't really become a focus of the typical primary care encounter beyond addressing depression. And typically it's addressing depression at trying to understand if it's at a clinically elevated level or if there's suicidality, it's got to be really severe. But we know from the science and the literature that even depressive symptoms, you don't have to be clinically depressed, but even depressive symptoms and symptoms of anxiety can interfere with an individual's ability to follow up with their care, to comply with treatment, to adhere to a healthy lifestyle, whether it's nutrition, sleep, physical activity. So I think that those are two really important areas that primary care needs to address is becoming educated and aware of the risk of secondary cancers for survivors and making sure that they're addressing psychosocial issues. And I would say within those psychosocial issues, I should include in there issues specific to fatigue or cognitive fogging and impairment due to cancer treatments. What are some strategies for oncologists to communicate with primary care doctors and vice versa or for older adults who've finished treatment? Yeah, so the survivorship care plans were really one of the major reasons why they were established by the Commission on Cancer and mandated, now, although the mandate has been relaxed now, but the reason why we give them is it's used as a communication tool to the primary care provider team. The survivorship care plan, for those listening that may not be familiar with it, it's a pretty comprehensive document that not only includes all the clinical information about the cancer itself, so the disease site, staging, tumor grade, types of treatments, dates of treatment, but it also covers the treatment team who work with the patient. It has specific guidelines for follow-up. The more sophisticated survivorship care plans have specific guidelines that are tailored to the patient. So if a patient had a specific type of, let's say, breast cancer and a specific type of chemotherapy, issues related to cardiotoxicities and monitoring for that, gets highlighted in the care plan. So I think the care plans can be a very powerful tool to help communicate with primary care. Some of the challenges with the care plans is that A, not everybody gets one, and B, they tend to be static documents. They don't get updated. And particularly as we're older, things keep changing. So, So some of those plans are outdated. But I would say that that's one of the primary communication modalities that would facilitate care of the older adult patient in primary care. In addition to that, I should say that there are programs out there, I think, right away of George Washington University and Stanford University have online programs that help train their primary care providers to deal with cancer survivors in primary care. Excellent. I want to ask about frailty. Obviously, there's a spectrum of older adults, those that are incredibly fit and those that are very frail. How about that group that are particularly frail? Yeah, absolutely. So frailty, as our population is getting older, and I should mention this term because I think it will be of interest to you. Catherine Alfano, who used to be with the American Cancer Society, coined this term called silver tsunami. 
And what the silver tsunami implied is that because the U.S. population is aging and living longer, that we're going to be hit with a very significant number of older cancer survivors. So that's starting to raise more and more awareness about geriatric issues and how they intersect with cancer survivorship. So one of those issues that's getting a lot of attention is this concept of frailty. And frailty, we think of it as weakness, but it's really, it's more of a a state of vulnerability for the patient, which occurs as a consequence of cumulative declines across physiological systems. And of course, it increases the risk of adverse outcomes. So if we look at some of the statistics on frailty, typically about 10% of individuals over the age of 65 have frailty. And if you look at the old, old, the 85 and older, those rates are 25 to 50%. So it's a very significant number of our older adult population. If you look at cancer patients, now those numbers jump up. 42% of older cancer patients are frail and 43% are pre-frail. So we're looking at individuals that have this cumulative risk that puts the individual at risk for falls, for additional comorbidities, cognitive decline, hospitalization, treatment complications that can obviously complicate the treatment and the outlook of, uh, of our patients. If we look at survival rate, also frailty seems to impact survival rate. If we look at the five-year general survival rate for a relatively healthy older cancer patient, that's about 72%. It's no different than for the general population. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For a frail patient, that drops to 34%. So it's cut in half. So frailty is really, really a major concern. And the way to address that and the way to intervene is to be able to assess the patient thoroughly. Cognitive function, range of motion, physical functioning, nutrition, muscle mass, bone mass, et cetera. I think it goes back to your point about the importance of primary care, because I find as an oncologist, I am focused on cancer care. And a lot of those other very important parts, more important in many ways, of someone's global health is really taken care of best by primary care. So I'm glad that this has been a good opportunity to remember that. Absolutely. And the NCI just put out a call for grants to understand how to implement survivorship care in primary care settings uh, to facilitate some of them. I want to say this has been a very interesting and informative episode. I have to say also, just reflecting on the survivorship field, there is a lot of emphasis on AYA, on child survivors of childhood cancer. And this has just been a, a great opportunity to, to really focus on the older adult population. Frank, I want to thank you for being with us. It's been a pleasure. It's a great opportunity to share some of these concepts, and uh, I hope it helps raise awareness about the challenges with treating older cancer survivors. Absolutely. And again, this is Dr. Frank Pinedo, Professor of Psychology and Medicine at the Sylvester Cancer Center. And I want to thank all of you as well for listening to this episode, for a listing of all of our healthcare professional continuing education activities, podcasts, and healthcare professional resources, including a fact sheet on blood cancer survivorship treatment and ongoing cancer care. Please visit lls.org slash CE. 
And for any questions or to refer a patient to LLS, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one support to help patients learn about their disease, treatment, financial, and support resources that are available in English and Spanish, including survivorship workbooks and caregiver workbooks for adults, children, and adolescents, and young adults. LLS also provides other resources for patients, survivors, and their families, including a series of podcasts that can be found at lls.org support. And finally, I want to encourage all of you to sign up to receive notification of future podcast episodes by subscribing at treatingbloodcancers.org. Uh, we look forward to you joining us on future podcasts. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.